0: This is episode number 215 with full-stack web developer Brian Doe. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Very excited to have you on the show today. Today we've got an aspiring data scientist and full-stack web developer, Brian Doe, joining us, and. I literally just got off the call with Brian a few hours ago and what I can say about this episode is it's very inspiring especially if you are a web developer yourself or a developer of any kind yourself you will find a lot of useful tips and insights in this episode. If you're not a developer you will also find a lot of useful tips Um, but I personally found a very like Brian's example of how he structured his career very insightful and something to to admire and kind of like dissect and that's exactly what we did in uh, this podcast so you'll find out like we touched on three main things so first of all we talked about what it's like to go from a developer to data scientist or in fact how to integrate data science in your career if you are a developer if you um, work on web development or any kind of development how to integrate data science in your career in fact i think anybody Looking to integrate data science will find a lot of these tips useful. Um, then we talked about models. We talked about developing models, deploying models in business, and maintaining models. In fact, we're gonna dissect a whole case study of a recent model that Brian has worked on using the a priori algorithm, and you will hear some back and forth between us about the development, the deployment, and the maintenance lifecycle. We'll actually come up with some ideas on the podcast which you might find quite interesting in terms of brainstorming and how to think about modeling, and in general, you'll get a lot of takeaways about modeling. And finally, we talked about getting into the space of data science. How, what it's like to learn data science? What's the, what are the challenges in the learning curve that Brian has been facing? He's been uh, learning data science for um, since since the start of this year, so for almost a year, um, plus or minus a couple of months. And um, you also hear about the tools, some of the tool recommendations that uh, Brian has for you if you're just starting out into data science. So there we go, that's uh, this podcast, uh, quite uh, interesting in terms of three pillars that we discussed, you'll get a lot of value from here. And without further ado, I bring to you Brian Doe, full stack developer and aspiring data scientist. Mm Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Today we've got a very exciting guest on the show, Brian Doe, calling in from San Mateo, California. Brian, how are you going today?
1: I'm doing good, Carol. How are you?
0: I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Um, And uh, it was such a pleasure to catch up at Data Science Go, mate. It, uh, It was exciting to hear your story. I can't wait to share it with our audience today. But uh first off how did you how did you feel at the event and how do you feel after it
1: uh It was really an incredible experience um There were so many fantastic presenters uh There were a lot of people that I sort of networked with and talked to outside of the sessions as well and got a lot um just all around out of um everyone I interacted with. It was an amazing experience, and I learned so much uh, and it's given me a lot of great jumping off points moving forward so
0: yeah. yeah thanks that's that's really great to hear and you just just before the podcast you mentioned you you're already getting into like you made this tilt or shift in your trajectory and you like started uh, doing stuff on kaggle after data science go you started uh, the andrew and G, um machine learning course quite a few things have happened for you right what, what's what would you say has been the biggest shift after attending data science go
1: 2018 I think that before I attended, uh, I had had some experience with um, applying machine learning models in sort of a, um, an easier setting where the data set is pre-prepared for you and it's pretty clean um, and you just get to get right to the modeling. Uh, and so one thing I wanted to do following up from Data Science Go is push my knowledge a little bit further. So uh, I actually went through and did um, like the derivations and the calculus for gradient descent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that made a huge difference for me in just understanding what's going on under the hood. And so even if uh, it can be more convenient to um, use libraries like scikit-learn and TensorFlow uh, to do projects, it's still really helpful to understand what's going on behind the scenes so that you can work with those tools more efficiently. So, so that was really, uh, yeah, that was really huge for me. Awesome. Um, and also with Kaggle,
0: uh,
1: I've been going through just some of the data sets that they have posted um, and trying to make some like predictions, even with just like basic models. Uh, but that's given me some good practice in uh, data pre processing and organizing a sort of um, not clean data set into something that can be fed into a model. And that's been uh, some really valuable experience for me
0: fantastic great to hear mate. And uh one more thing on data science go i'm always curious about this what who what was your favorite talk who was the speaker who gave you a favorite talk
1: uh i think one of my favorite ones was uh gabriella de quiros uh from ibm mm. uh, so her talk on uh deploying or um i think it was uh deploying machine learning models in five minutes or something like that Deep learning
0: i think it was deep learning models in five minutes
1: yeah yeah exactly and um just uh, she showed us the, the model asset exchange uh, that you can use to sort of find a bunch of pre-built and pre-trained models and start deploying them uh, very quickly. And I thought that was really interesting um, and walked away from that uh, with some items on my to-do list to go through a lot of resources. So mm-hmm. uh, I really I really enjoyed her talk a
0: great deal. Fantastic. Well, that's very exciting. Um, well, Brian, very cool to have you on the show. Uh, and One of the reasons is because I am excited, super excited about your career path. I think you have a very inspiring journey that you've created for yourself, and I would love to share it with our listeners. And what I mean here for for our listeners is that uh, what you need to know about Brian is that he is a full stack developer, web developer, uh, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, And Brian. Uh, has sees the value of data science, sees the value of machine learning and deep learning and is actively applying that in his career. And I know that out across our audience, across the listeners of our podcast, a very large percentage of you guys, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 percent, that's my rough estimate, I mean, it might be even more, are people who are developers who are also looking to get into data science or already in data science, have transitioned into data science or have uh, you know, seen the value of data science? And I think it is this is going to be an inspiring story for you guys to model in your careers. But even if you're not a developer, the steps that Brian has taken to integrate data science in his career, without fully jumping straight into it uh, and like you know quitting his job and just going data science, data science ha is quite inspiring. So I think that that's gonna be cool. So I'm very excited to dig into it. How are you feeling about this, Brian?
1: Uh I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm excited to uh to dig into this as well. So,
0: awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Some some good self reflection opportunity for you I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Something. Okay, so tell us a bit about you, Brian. You are um, a web developer, full stack web developer. Um, if somebody off the street were to ask you, Brian, what is it that you do? What does a full stack web developer do? Could you, how would you answer that question?
1: Uh, sure. So generally when people ask me that, um, cause it's come up uh, a decent amount in conversation, I'll, uh, I'll say that full stack is a, a combination of front end and back end technologies. Um, and in my specific case, I worked for a company called uh, education.com. Um, it's a web application. And so for web applications, uh, front end usually has to do with building templates. So um, all the HTML and CSS uh, the parts of the site that users uh, see visually, and also some JavaScript for interactive components. And uh, the back end side is like the database and um, like APIs that interact with your database um, and grab data to display to the end user. Um, so the front end would be like what you see when you look at a web page and the back end would be like what happens behind the scenes when you click a button to like submit a form like where is that data going what is it doing most of that is handled by uh, back-end technology yeah
0: gotcha and uh, how long have you been with education.com
1: it's been about uh, nine months now so Mm -hmm. not very long Mm -hmm. Uh, I I interned for four months and I've been full-time for about uh, roughly the last like uh, five, five to five mm-hmm. and a half months.
0: Okay, gotcha. Um, and tell us what attracted you in data science? Like why uh, Why are you on this podcast? Like why Why did you, how did you get into this, hear about data science and uh, what next steps did you take from there?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, I actually first learned about data science, uh, Kirill, through your course, uh, Machine Learning A to Z. Um, and I started doing it uh, maybe about like two or three months after I had started working for nice. education. Um, very nice. And prior to that, I had like built some uh, applications, you know, just to sort of teach myself that were had like very simple data components, like maybe just a user database and maybe like, you know, the ability to make blog posts or write reviews, um, et cetera. And when I stumbled across machine learning A to Z, like. I had heard of the field. I didn't really know too much about it. Um, And I remember watching your introductory video where it kind of goes over a lot of the applications and use cases of machine learning. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. This is, um, provides a really interesting way to look at data, gain insights from it, and like improve the actions that you can take on the basis of that. And so um, that was really interesting to me. And I think as I progressed through the course, uh, I found it to be more accessible um, and something that I could jump into even though I didn't have too much experience. And uh, yeah, it just kind of uh, progressed from there and my interest of it has um, only grown over time.
0: So, interesting, interesting. Well, yeah. Let's re- let's rewind a little bit. So uh, tell me this, how, how do you stumble across a machine learning Z course? What, what were you searching online for? Obviously, there was some kind of, you know, uh, need that you were trying to fulfill when you saw, like, people don't just normally stumble upon, upon machine learning A to Z unless they're actually looking for something related to data science. Like, what was the initial trigger for that to happen?
1: Um, so, I had been using Udemy for a long time before that for uh, projects that were mm-hmm. unre- specifically to data science. Like, sorry, I mentioned before how I was Trying to get started by building uh, simple applications to, um, you know, develop my uh, development skills.
0: Basically, yeah.
1: uh, I had taken some courses at that time on, like you know, building a, a clone of Yelp with Ruby on Rails, and then I found one on um, building a, a price alerts app with Python and Flask. And so throughout the course of my learning, um, my Udemy feed or the courses that popped to the top had to do a lot with um, with app development and with programming in general and with uh, with Python also specifically over time. And then I think it was through that that your course um, just sort of popped up on my list.
0: Um, okay, was, so kind and- of machi- like you got into machine learning and data science because machine learning and data science got you in there in the first place. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, sort of. Yeah, the the this, the circle has closed, right? The we've gone full circle with this. This is so cool, right? Like, what? How ha- you're studying exactly the stuff that has influenced your career to study that stuff. This is like this is like Inception level type of thinking. Right? <laughs> have you ever thought of it that way?
1: uh I have it, but that's really interesting. Now that
0: you put it that way. Yeah. Oh my! Wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. My, one of the craziest stories. Okay, so. You um, got into uh, machine learning and, uh, and you started taking the course. And at the same time, how, how were you able to apply this at work? Like you're a full stack developer. And this is, this is where the interesting st- stuff starts to come in. Because like, I know your story a little bit already. Um, how were you able to take that into your own? Like as a developer, if I'm a full stack developer, I might be a bit like shy or I might be a bit um, not even come to mind that I can bring this stuff, you know, machine learning to work is not applying. It's completely unrelated to my role. So how did you go about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I definitely did uh, feel that um, of like not knowing exactly where to start, where the right opportunity was. And it happened in a a very like roundabout and sort of like by chance way. Um, Our company, uh, we hold, we try to hold at least one, uh, hack week every year. Mm-hmm. And, um, for those who might not be familiar with what that is, um, it's generally where, uh, everyone can sort of come up with their own projects that they want to build outside of the development pipeline. Um, and yeah. And then every, like people can team up and then just try to build whatever they want and then we all present to each other at the end of the week. And by the time, uh, hack week came about, which was about, uh, like, la- like may of this year. I had been um, studying machine learning maybe for like like two to three months. Uh, and I had uh, talked, like briefly mentioned it to some people at work in passing. And then when Hack Week came about, uh, one of my colleagues approached me um, and he wanted to uh, build a, a recommendation uh, system using machine learning. And that was basically the extent of uh, the background for it. And uh, um, Yeah, so I remember uh, sitting down with him, sort of trying to brainstorm what to do, or or before I get too much deeper into that, Mm -hmm. this hack was really, I think the catalyst for a lot of um, the professional application of machine learning or in my workplace to happen, uh, just because it provided an opportunity to just build a project that you're passionate about without any other restrictions. Um, And I think, Looking back, uh, that really yeah empowered me to start um, bringing up ideas and trying to make things work outside of that context and just you know just do it as part of our normal pipeline of projects. Um, but if I could looking back like make a recommendation to someone in a similar position, it would be um, to not hesitate to just dive in and start trying to find problems to solve because. I think a lot of full stack developers have access to a wide breadth of data um, because you have to, to work with it um, when you build your applications. And so I think just sort of diving into the data that your company has and um, like looking and then trying to figure out, okay, like how what's a way that I could use this? Like what's something that I could predict um, based on certain features or um, what uh, value could I extract from this that could be presented to the end user in some way Um, I think like, yeah, my recommendation would be to just dive in, start thinking about problems to solve. And when you have something or an idea of how to go, like, you know, odds are that the other developers you work with will be intrigued by this and curious about this. And you have an idea that could potentially bring value to the company. Um, so I think like trying to empower yourself and just dive in and start looking for problems to solve is, is one of the best ways uh, to get started.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I uh, just wanted to mention two points here. Um, first one was that be, you also obviously need to be careful, right? Like as a developer, um, it depends on company to company, but often you, like, you do have potential access to data. But for instance, in Facebook, if you use it for the wrong reasons, you'll probably get fired. So... Uh, kind of like be sensible about that and, and uh, maybe confirm with your boss if you can use that data or maybe if you if that's a bit too early to do, maybe create some dummy data sets that are similar. You have you know similar columns in, in terms of like structure to the company data set, but like play around or download some data sets uh, in your free time to play around with before you actually play around with real data that is customer based, especially if it's sensitive data. That's, that's one comment I just wanted to make. But uh, in general, indeed, like even if your company doesn't have these hack weeks or hackathons, which I think are very useful, uh, especially, but they're usually, they usually take place in larger organizations that uh, you know, want to inspire innovation. So if, if your company doesn't have that, you know, maybe you can talk to the management to start introducing it. But even if that's not the case, you can still play around with data or dummy data or similar data and see how you could potentially bring value to the business. And you can still bring those results and those suggestions to your management or to the company leadership and present it to them. Every company in this day and age wants to be data-driven or model-driven. They will jump on top of it. If, if you can add value to the bottom line of the company, uh, it, it is a very rare instance that management, especially when it's concerning technology and data science, Um, where the the investment isn't that high but the return on investment can be massive very rare is uh, uh, do you get cases where management turn down those ideas turn down those innovations so as long as you're proactive don't let the the absence of a hack week or a hackathon get in your way or if for instance your hack week is you know 11 months away it happens once a year if it's 11 months away don't wait you you can already do it now those are just some of my uh, thoughts on that and uh, Brian you were talking about you were um, preparing for this hack quick and a colleague of yours came up to you and said uh, and then you got into this project what was this, what was this whole idea you said you you were going to dive deeper into that topic
1: uh, sure so so the project uh, was a, a recommendation system for our content so um, just uh, maybe to give a little bit of background information on what we do at education.com, uh, we we're a, we're a platform for parents and teachers to come and find resources and teaching tools uh, to help their kids. Mm. And so when I say like a recommendation system for our content, I mean, we have just a bunch of worksheets and games and lesson plans and all of the stuff that parents and teachers can come and use. And uh, so what we wanted to do is create a way or improve the way that we recommend other resources that you can use based on what you're viewing. So if you like go to our website and click on a worksheet, um, you'll see at the bottom, like five, here are five other worksheets that, you know, are related to this one that we would recommend for you. And so, uh, yeah, so just to give a little bit of background on that, but anyway, so, um, colleague approached me, um, his name is Jan Burke, a brilliant engineer. And he, yeah, so he approached me wanting to build this recommender, And as we were sitting down and sort of talking about uh, what some different angles are that we could go about this with, like what data would we use? um, Like how would we arrange it? Like what model would be needed? uh, He brought up something or he said, uh, what if we're looking at this problem the wrong way? What if this problem is um, people who downloaded this also downloaded this, right? Or like, what if that's the way that we're going to look at it? And as soon as he said that, a light bulb in my brain went off and I thought, I know that I learned of an algorithm in machine learning A to Z, that's perfect for solving this exact type of problem. So I went through and I looked through all of my notes and it turned out that that algorithm was the a priori algorithm. Um, And I remember, uh, I I know that I made that connection because the example given was uh, using that algorithm in like for a grocery store to try and figure out uh, where to place their products in relation to each other based on what products most users or most uh, customers would um, would buy together. And so I remember it just like light bulb moment went off, made that connection and then I knew that was the place where we had to start based on the way that we had uh, scoped the problem out. So uh, what I did was I went back and I looked at um, the slides uh, from machine learning A to Z from that section and in those slides, Kirill, you went over um, the equations for uh, support, confident, and lift mm-hmm. for that algorithm. And then using those equations, I uh, scripted um, or I just converted that into code basically in Python and then set up uh, you know, the structure to loop through all of our data and gather the information that we needed. Um, and Jan, uh, the engineer I was working on this with, Uh, did the pre-processing portion and then got me the data set. And then we started testing and trying to figure out, um, you know, if it was going to work, if it was going to, you know, give back um, good predictions, because uh, one of the um, attributes of this algorithm that made it a little challenging to figure out whether it was going to produce good results is that we didn't get like the immediate feedback on whether it's like an a correct or incorrect estimate, for example, like you would with a supervised machine learning algorithm. So we had to look at some of the results by hand and figure out, okay, um, is this producing the results that we wanted? And what we were specifically looking for was to have sort of a a loose, a more loosely defined recommendation. Than we currently had for a given worksheet, because let's say um, you looked up uh, like a two like a two-digit multiplication worksheet on our site, what we had before um, would it would have just given you like three or five two-digit multiplication worksheets, and we were thinking, okay, like how useful is that really for someone who is coming to our site and looking for another jumping-off point? Like if they find a worksheet, are they just going to want to find more worksheets that are exactly the same, uh, probably not. What might be more useful is like, you know, maybe they're looking for like two digit division, something that's related to what they're on, but not exactly the same. And so we were hoping that by using uh, user download histories instead of just like the content tagging or like what the sub, what the exact subject was, that we would get some better results that would actually be more uh, beneficial to users and Um, As we went through, that turned out to to be the case Uh, and we saw that we were getting the recommendations that we were looking for and then um, after we presented at the end of the week, uh, it started, um, you know, picking up steam and enthusiasm and then we decided to run it on the site as an A-B test and uh, after running it for a while, um, it turned out that it won against our uh, former recommendation system and then we pushed it to production and it became our first uh, machine learning model that was deployed on the live site. So that was a, a huge win and a really exciting first step um, in implementing machine learning. But uh, the first of many is what, I'm, is what I'm very much hoping for and striving to, uh, to make the case, is that this is just the first step on a longer journey to integrate uh, more machine learning into our into our operations, and so yeah, it's uh, it's very exciting stuff. Wow, man,
0: that that's awesome! Congratulations, that uh, that's a huge project, and the more you know, most importantly, that it actually got implemented into uh, the business and added value. That's that's really cool to hear. And um, just to just to recap, uh, so let me know if if I'm getting this right. So uh, before the recommender system was recommending more content to your users based on the tagging. So for instance, you have these multiplication sheets and maybe your tutorials, maybe some videos, some, some other content that you have, all sorts of content. And they're all tagged, like, you know, this is multiplication, this is, uh, this is for first grade, this is for fourth grade, this is, um, right. you know, math, this is this other topic and so on. And uh, based on the tagging, the similarity of tags, it would recommend something. Whereas your new recommender system, uh, which is through the a priori algorithm, it would look at not just the tagging, but it would look at what our users actually downloading. So if some, you know, if uh, people on average downloaded X, what did on average they download after that? Or what did most of them download after that? So you're looking at the behavior of your users and based on that, you're saying, okay, well, uh, even though it's not tagged identically, it looks like that's what people want. You know, that's, that's what people are after. And we're gonna use that as a suggestion, and so that uh, a priori algorithm approach worked better than your uh, previous recommender method. Is that is that about right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's essentially the gist of it. Yeah.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Sounds a lot like Amazon. Like you go on Amazon and you buy something, and then out of the blue they recommend you something else. You it might not be related at all, but that's because most people. Kind of like after they bought that one thing, they usually go searching for that other thing. Type though, people that are similar to you, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Gotcha.
0: And then yeah. after that, you did a quality assessment, uh, like uh, not a qu- quantitative assessment, uh, as you mentioned, because you didn't have like with uh, supervised learning algorithms, you couldn't like say yes, no, correct or incorrect. In this case, you did a qualitative assessment where you just went in and you tested out a few of those recommendations to see if what the recommendation was actually made sense to you. Like which the example you gave, like a, uh, a three by three multiplication table, instead of getting a four by four one, you get a division table, which kind of like makes sense, right, is that is that what you did next?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what we did. What? Um, yeah, we were looking for things that were like not exactly the same, but still would likely to be within the same subject area that might be closely related. Um, So like, for example, yeah, like that example that I gave, um, hoping that users would be maybe studying those two subjects at the same time and they could find things that would be more directly related to, like where they would go next um, from a given subject. Or something that they might be also practicing at the same time.
0: And so how long has this system been uh, in place now this uh recommender algorithm?
1: Um it's been uh a couple months now uh mm. that it's been up um yeah like so the hack week was in in May and after that there were um some additional steps that needed to be taken to uh to set it up and running with our our whole data set and uh yeah that took Um, some time but yeah for a couple months now it's been up and running and yeah and and live
0: Mm -hmm. and how how how's the um how the results like how is the management seeing are they seeing some positive impact are they happy with how like this uh, change what this change has brought
1: uh yeah it has it has brought um a positive change but we're, we're definitely also looking to to see how we can improve it Um, because this was just sort of like a first run, like, you know, like it did win the A-B test, but uh, we were still looking for ways to improve and to um, provide more valuable recommendations to our users. Uh, And I think, yeah, that this was a good first step to at least identify resources that um, are being used and consumed most often. But I think there's there's so many places that this could go and there's so much that we could still do uh, to improve our recommendation capabilities. And that's something that we're, uh, diving into right now.
0: Man, that, that's so cool. And I could just imagine the, the boost of morale that you got from that. Like when your algorithm got implemented, how, how did that feel?
1: Uh, it was, uh, it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think one big takeaway that I had from that is that, uh, when I was first studying machine learning, Um, sort of leading up to that. And I think still a little bit following from the implementation of that algorithm. Uh, My focus was I wanted to learn all these like cool, you know, cutting edge tools like, you know, neural nets. um, Yeah, and like, you know, GANs and stuff like that. Like all this, uh, like, you know, some of the more like advanced modeling tools. Uh, But the process of actually sitting down, looking at what data we had available and trying to choose a model that fits best with that sort of showed me that you you have to start from the problem and then try and find the model that best fits the solution rather than just picking a cool model that you have in mind that you really want to work with like you know like a CNN and then searching for a problem that fits that solution i think that can be like a great way to learn about a new technology right like if you if you're focused on learning about like CNNs and and you look for problems that specifically fit uh, that use case, um, that's great for learning, but in practice, you know, you don't always get to to choose the problems that come to you. Sometimes there's just uh, a problem at hand that needs to be solved, and you need to explore your toolkit and just choose whatever's best fitted for that solution. Like sometimes, you know, I think I've I've seen cases or at least read about vaguely cases where a bunch of models were tried, and like a simple linear regression or a simple logistic regression was like the best outcome and and sometimes that's the case sometimes uh like the model that you initially had in mind that you were focused on um isn't the best tool for the problem, and something that maybe is a little bit like simpler in scope is, and so I think that's something that uh I've thought about a lot is it doesn't have to be like the craziest algorithm out there to make a really big impact, and so that's something that I think about going forward is um just starting from the problem first and then, you know, searching for the tool that solves that after the fact.
0: Very, very wise words. Totally agree with that. Uh, it's very easy to get carried away, uh, with, uh, machine learning and all of these new shiny cool things. And that's awesome to learn them. They're very good to, uh, inspire you to learn and to grow and to find like these different non-standard applications, but at the same time, sometimes less is more, right? You just go for what solves a problem and does that efficiently. And in your case, it was the a priori, which is which is awesome to hear. Um, the, another thing I wanted to ask you on this topic was that the integration of the algorithm into your company services. I think this is an, a very cool area that a lot of the time is missed by data scientists that you not only have to develop an algorithm but you have to also uh, operationalize it, you have to make it work in the company so you have to somehow put it into production, it has to integrate with the website and all those things. So I think that would be really cool to talk about that, are you able to share some details with us on, on how you, know, you went about it and what challenges you faced along the way?
1: uh yeah i could share some details about that so um my so a lot of the the bulk of the work to actually set this up um on production uh was handled uh by my colleague who has like a lot more familiarity with like the way that these systems work Mm -hmm. um a big challenge was just being able to um like run all of this data because we have like there was like so much data in user download histories from like all of our users and all the things they downloaded, it um it gets pretty big pretty quickly, and so um, knowledge of uh cloud computing services became really helpful in this case, and and that's what uh what we were able to use um uh to do this. And so uh, one thing that a challenge that came along with that is trying to decide when and how often the model would need to be run, because I think that's a question that um is really important is like, are you? Do you need to make actual calculations with this model on the fly, or can you run it like every so often, and use the results or store the results from that um, to display to the end user? And so we ended up going with the second approach, of just running our algorithm every so often to gather this information, like the uh, to like for a given worksheet or game that you know a user downloaded or played. Um, Figuring out the the top so many worksheets that are associated with it which is mainly the task that the algorithm was uh, accomplishing um, we decided that it would be much more efficient for us to uh, yeah to just run this every so often and store the results so that when a user visited the worksheet we could just pull it directly from our database without having to um, yeah without having to actually run the calculation on the fly and so I think that's something that can vary from use case to use case and model to model, depending on how you're trying to apply it. Maybe you, you will need to actually run like um, a prediction or a calculation on the fly when a user clicks a button, for example. And that can be um, whether or not that's a feasible place to implement your model, I think depends on the, uh, the weight of the calculation that it needs to make. And so if it, uh if it needed to, Make a calculation that required a lot of processing time, but the user needs a result immediately, then that might not be a feasible way to go versus if it's something that might not change drastically from you know day to day or week to week, then you could just run your algorithm every so often and then store the results uh, within uh, like a structure that you already have set up to store data, for example, so I think um, it sort of it depends on the use case, it depends on uh, what you're trying to do and and how often um, the results of the model need to be updated. And uh, I think, yeah, there are definitely ways to think strategically to to integrate systems like this uh, without um, running massive programs like every time a user clicks a button, for example.
0: Okay, gotcha. Um, Very, very cool advice as well. Uh, that there's different types of models and I hope people are taking notes of this that sometimes you might need to run them on the fly and get results all the time. Sometimes it's enough to run them uh, occasionally and uh, especially big companies with lots of data, uh, they have uh, time time slots for running things on the server. So usually they run, like I was at a company after leaving Deloitte where they would run things at night and uh, like they're every single Hour and sometimes like usually in fifteen minute chunks or maybe even shorter chunks, the whole night is split into um, like so the into these periods where you you need to apply to get server time lo- locally or you know now more things and more and more things are going to the cloud, but still a lot of companies do things on premise, uh, do calculations on premise, and so they in order to run all these models and do all the calculations, update all the data. Uh, and stuff like that especially like if it's uh, for example in financial services you gotta you gotta turn over all the things that happen during during the day make sure everything is accurate reconcile a lot of stuff that all happens at night and uh, you want to be very mindful of how you're using server time in your company but even if it's in the cloud it's still every time you rerun the model it's still going to be a cost it's still going to take uh, take some kind of budget or something so being conscious about whether you need to run r- right away or not is is pretty uh, Quite important thing. I'm gonna ask you this question. So I, I want to see What like uh, in a bit of a different space have you taken uh, the data science a to z course? Uh,
1: no, I don't think I have actually
0: okay, so uh, the reason I ask is because in the data science a to z course we talk about model maintenance and I just wanted to see, like, I, obviously this, this has been a big success and breakthrough for both you and the company in terms of um, developing and deploying this a priori model. What are your thoughts on how you're going to maintain it? And the reason I ask is because I've seen situations where models deteriorate. In fact, I've seen a situation where a model used to be very effective, like it would bring like 80% accuracy. But then over time, over like a period of 18 months, it deteriorated to a level where the accuracy was less than 50%. It was like 42% or something. Meaning that it would have been more efficient for the company to just flip a coin and do the recommendations based on that rather than using a model. And so I'm just curious, uh, what are your thoughts on how to maintain this model?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And um, I think... To a certain extent, this can depend on the domain that you're in, and what I mean by that is, I think like different domains have a different like pace to how mm-hmm. their data shifts structurally over time. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we're in education space, um, you know, at education.com, and uh, and that kind of means that we follow the cycle of a school year. Yep. Right. So, like for example, a given parent or teacher um, based on the time of year and based on when they signed up, like maybe, you know, they sign up in, in like August and then from August through June, they're using a bunch of like second grade resources and maybe for a parent, like they then move on to, to the next grade and then they're going to be consuming a bunch of like third grade resources. Right. So, uh, if we were to just store, and continually update the model just based on new data coming in and not deal with um, eliminating old data, it would undoubtedly begin to grow stale over time in the sense that you know, you're now would be making predictions based on users who have been with the platform for several years. And so you might not get the best recommendation for like a second grade worksheet because you'd be pooling from download histories from a bunch of different grades as well and so um i think that's for us that's something that uh we've like already implemented as part of the algorithm is to is to keep it seasonal and to try and look at data that's relevant to the time period that we're in relative to the school year and so i think thinking about things like that like how often um like for us right now like grade is is the main way that we look at this, but I think it could be interesting to dive in and see how like subjects covered might change over time, um, and uh, yeah. But for now, um, for now, grades and and school years like the main data that we have to go on because um, you know there's a lot of different curriculums out there, and our site is used very widely, and so it would be it's a, a challenge to find a way to update your algorithm in a way that meets the needs of all the users on your platform. Um, School year and grade just happens to be one way that's pretty standardized uh, across our users, but I think um, trying to push that further and and make it even more relevant to um, what a given user might be looking for uh, yeah, is definitely something that is a challenge that we're going to have to rise up to and meet um, over time. really challenging problem um,
0: yeah okay gotcha that's uh that's a very uh, cool consideration about the seasonality um if i may i'd like to give you another suggestion is that okay sure yeah so one thing i was thinking about is uh, with your model you could measure the um how well it makes those recommendations so you could say all right we made all these recommendations how much of those recommendations were actually used in those in how many cases what in what percentage of the cases was the recommended content actually consumed by the user to whom it was being recommended or consumed you know within a relevant time frame like it could be maybe they didn't consume it right away maybe they had to think about it but like within a week or a month they did indeed consume the content because you know if you have the right data points in place you can actually collect that information okay we recommended uh, content z And they, you know, didn't use ContentZen in in the week or they did use ContentZen and kind of like just have a yes, no type of approach and see that like currently at this stage, uh, your model has, um, I don't know, like a 35 accuracy or percentage or or that's a bit low, maybe like 75% accuracy rate that 75% of the content you recommend is actually indeed consumed by the users. And then I would set up a system that would track that, that, you know, even... Uh, autonomously it could track that and say all right so how is our model going month to month uh, maybe you'll see some seasonality in that which you could be possibly be able to explain but maybe with time you will see that oh that's interesting you know before it was 75% now it's dropped to 74 now it's uh, 69 now it's down to 65 and if you see like a consistent trend going downwards that means something's going on with your model and possibly that could be a shift not just a seasonal shift but that could be a shift in the demographics of your population in uh, you know maybe uh, maybe a change in some kind of legislation around what students have to learn what they shouldn't learn uh, maybe a change in the available content on your platform on the available content outside or um, some influence from competitors or advertising agencies that people are looking to other stuff that your model couldn't have possibly taken into account at the time you created it because that event or that environment was not there at the time. And so I I feel that like tracking like that dynamic tracking or constant tracking through time is important because it allows you to fish out these um, changes that you can not otherwise see, right? Like so you need a flag, you need kind of an indicator that something is going on in the industry or in our platform in the business in our audience that we need to address, and we need to either retrain the model, rebuild it, or so on uh, because if you like if that's on track, then it actually can be a bit too late. What do you think think on that
1: um, Thank you so much for all those insights yeah it's uh I think those are some really good ideas um I know for me um this was really a big first step for me into um, this space and yeah it's really helpful to hear about other ways to push this further Um, yeah from someone such as yourself who has more experience in this field and so yeah Yeah. I think I'm gonna be walking away from this with a lot of things to think about and (laughs) a lot of uh, interesting ideas to to bring up to my to my colleagues tomorrow
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that's awesome well thanks thanks for sharing I think this has been a good case study for our uh, listeners in terms of you know like the whole the whole process right not just creating an algorithm or model that you know solves a problem which is awesome but actually then deploying it and then considering maintaining it those are like all three are extremely important in the whole life cycle of a data scientist or the of a data science project all right well now let's let's shift gears a little bit let's talk about you mentioned you know, learning data science. You mentioned uh, that how you you got interested in the field, and actually, like the Udemy recommender system brought uh, machine learning to you, and then you got into it. Uh, tell us a bit about the learning curve. How difficult is it to learn data science for somebody who's coming from a developer background?
1: Um, so I think I think it depends a little bit on what you want to do with it and specifically like how deep you want to dive into like for example the underlying mathematics and stuff that like drives like drives a lot of these concepts right and to that end i will say i think it's um it's easy or not not like easier to get to a point where you can apply these models quickly as opposed to if you were to like say try and build a certain model yourself from scratch like that would take a little bit more time Um, but i will say coming back a little bit to machine learning a to z um, i think that course did a really good job of empowering you to get started with applying algorithms quickly Um, like after the data pre-processing section it basically gets right into like oh here's how you can apply a linear regression model here's how you can apply a support vector machine and you see from doing a bunch of models like that that the actual code to apply the model, if you're using a library like scikit-learn, is not that extensive. And so I think um, getting to the point where you can at least start applying models and start working with them, uh, you can do that very quickly. Uh, I think once you enter that phase, transitioning from that into, applying these models in the real world can be a bit steeper of a learning curve because of the data pre-processing component. Um, I think in a lot of courses that you'll see uh, or just like data will be arranged in a fairly neat format um, relative to how you would actually find it in the real world. And so uh, I, would, I would even go so far as to categorize it as like a separate skill from modeling that you need to bring together with modeling in order to apply data science. Um, And you could spend a ton of time, sort of as like I've been trying to do more recently with Kaggle data sets, just looking at a random data set that you find and and thinking, okay, how can I arrange this and get it ready to be fed into a model? Just where um, I have all the features that I need, they are, scaled or converted appropriately into into what they need to be like for categorical data, like, you know, one hot encoding it to make sure it can be fed into a model. You can spend a lot of time and just diving into the data preprocessing aspect. And I think um, there can be a learning curve there. But I think if you, if you just push yourself to start tackling these problems and just dive in, just look at a random data set and just start playing around with it Um, you know like sort of look up what you need to as you go for like how you manipulate a data set with a given tool like pandas for example Um, and if you do that and just practice with different data sets in different contexts uh, you can gain a lot of skills um, you know like fairly quickly to at least be able to uh, to not be paralyzed by the idea of seeing this data set that doesn't you know that you feed it into a model right away and you get a bunch of errors back. You know, um, that can be very discouraging to someone who is like just starting out um, and doesn't really know what to do when previously they've just like ran a command that worked perfectly because they had a data set that was pre-prepared. Um, but yeah, so uh, so to kind of synthesize a little bit, um, I think that it's it can be easier to. Like, start learning about how the models work and apply them on clean data sets. And a little bit harder to, to get to the point where you can really use these effectively in practice. Um, but it's still very much attainable. It's very much feasible um, if you just push yourself, apply yourself, and dive in, start tackling problems, even though it can be a bit nerve wracking at first. Uh, you know, it's still a really great learning opportunity, especially when. You know, you're struggling with all these challenges and pushing yourself to figure it out. Um, I think when that's when some of the deepest
0: learning happens. Um, totally so. agree. Totally through 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 those challenges. Okay, and uh, and what would you say is you know, like you mentioned, some of the difficult things, especially about data preparation. Totally agree on that. What are some of the things that actually keep you going? You know, have you noticed in this uh, uh, naturally, you're, you're successful. Um, implementation of the a priori and how it was used in the business that was something really cool that definitely gave you a massive push was there anything else along your journey that you noticed that once you get to these milestones that gives you the inspiration to keep going because that could be helpful for some of our listeners who are um, considering taking this approach
1: Uh, yeah I know um, so yeah getting the a priori live was definitely a big one to actually see that um, it was possible to take something through to production. Um, I think for, for me, uh, I, I, I sort of felt frustrated by the fact that I knew how to apply a lot of models without diving into the deeper mathematics. Um, and I really wanted to, to understand, okay, like what, what does gradient descent actually mean? Like, you know, I've, I've seen it covered, I understand the general idea of what it's doing, uh, but how does it actually work? And something that I did actually very recently is went through and um, actually by hand wrote out all of the uh, calculus to derive gradient descent for a linear regression problem. And then I did the same thing to derive the back algorithm for neural networks. And I think when I did both of those things and realized the connection between the two and sort of saw that you know the back propagation algorithm is an application of gradient descent on neural nets in the same way that gradient descent works on a linear regression or at least with the same conceptual grounding uh that was really like a big breakthrough and understanding for me to where i actually you know it's like what does it actually mean to train a model it's like okay you feed it data and it learns how to predict based on that data but like what is that learning actually mean and then getting on top of gradient descent I think you know that's like at the core of how many algorithms learn and for me that was huge and just you know I I think so many things sort of clicked and came together and makes made more sense after I did that um, that I would I would definitely recommend that maybe not as a like a first starter activity to do um, but after you've like played around with some models Um, have a general idea of like what a model is trying to accomplish and what training is trying to do, um, diving in and trying to understand what's going on under the hood, uh, can make it a lot, I guess, boost your confidence when looking at, you know, it can be sort of disorienting to look at one line of code and know that that line of code is like the entire training for a machine learning algorithm. It's, um, it can be hard to look at that and understand what's really going on, uh, if you like haven't like for example done some of these uh, derivations or deep dives into the underlying mechanics of how everything works, and so uh, I would definitely recommend doing that at least like once or a couple times, you know, to to help yourself understand those things, and then it makes um it gives you a lot more understanding when applying the models in practice, even if you end up using the like single line of code training. It's like, you'll understand in a more deep way what's, what's going on there.
0: Gotcha. Very, very interesting advice. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, interesting. Like everybody, I think everybody has ways to get inspiration for uh, pushing themselves forward and for learning more. Um, that's, that's definitely a valid, valid suggestion for our listeners as well. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you uh, is uh, what's, uh, kind of, what kind of tools would you recommend starting with uh, for somebody who's just getting into the space or considering getting into the space?
1: Mm. Uh, so for me, uh, Python was definitely my language of choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that uh, you know, like R is also very, very big in the space. But uh, for me, I had already done some work in Python, so I was a little bit familiar with it. And I do think it's um, it's a good place to start. Uh, Scikit-learn, which I've I've mentioned a couple of times, is I think a really good library to start with as well, um, because it there are a lot of different machine learning models that it accounts for, um, so it can be you know really easy to swap out different models, like try different things and sort of see what predicts better. Um, Pandas is really important for Python for uh, working with your data set. And, um, like, I think a lot of times I've seen it used like in tutorials, it's, uh, usually just used for like importing the data set, but there is a lot more that you can do with it. Like you can do join sort of in a similar way that you would do in, in SQL. Um, I think SQL is also really important to know on a, on a practical level. That's something that I'm working to build my skills in, uh, because a lot of times, um, you know, like, your data could be stored in like different databases, maybe some's in a SQL database, maybe some's in a NoSQL database like MongoDB. And uh, knowing how to run queries in any given situation where your data might be, um, so you can pull data from different sources and sort of arrange it um, in a way that's comprehensible uh, is, is definitely valuable. And I think uh, SQL is definitely something that you would see a lot in practice Um, and Mongo or like NoSQL databases are picking up a lot of steam as well. So understanding basic queries to pull your data. Um, Once you get your data into like, for example, in my case, like a Python script, uh, pandas can be really useful to to manipulate the data in any way that you um, couldn't or or didn't with like the previous methods before it gets into your script. Um, And yeah, scikit-learn, great for modeling. NumPy is sort of like just a basic um, use case in Python that ends up uh, working really well with a lot of the other tools that I've mentioned, so that is very valuable. Um, If you are looking to get beyond, or or get into the spectrum of neural nets, uh, Keras is really useful. Um, That's something that I've uh, done a decent amount of work with in my spare time. Um, And you can create like a neural net in just a few lines of code, and swap out different techniques or different um, like loss functions or activation functions to uh, change the structure that you're working with uh, really easily. So um, it's a great tool for people who are starting out um, with neural networks to like sort of try out different things and see um, how um, different structures of your network can achieve different results. So yeah, those are probably some of the tools that I've worked with the most while trying to um, myself, and I'm still very much a novice with a lot of these things but uh yeah it's it's been a, a very useful way for me to get started and dive in
0: Gotcha. well thanks so much that uh that's some great advice and great list of tools um and Brian we're uh come, we've come to the end of the podcast in terms of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all these insights um I think it was really cool we discussed your journey through Uh, development or software development to machine learning the different stages in building deploying and maintaining a model and uh, what we just talked about how you know getting into the space of data science how easy it is or you know what challenges uh, people will face Uh, before before you wrap up i did want to ask you what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you to follow your career on and maybe learn more things from you
1: uh the best way to get in touch with me would be uh linkedin uh just uh linkedin.com slash in slash brian doe that's b-r-i-a-n-d-o-w-e
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh yeah that's uh yeah that's the best way to get in touch with me um awesome. if you if you message me on there yeah I'll, I'll i see him respond to all my messages on
0: linkedin so uh, awesome yeah. all okay. right cool well uh that's where you guys can find brian and uh before we finish up today one last question what is your favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners to empower their careers?
1: Uh, so, one thing I've already talked about a lot is um, machine learning A to Z, and I just want to, um, well, first off, thank you so much uh, Kirill and also Adlan for, for putting that out there. It was um, the course that got me started on this journey, and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, but specifically why I'd recommend this, um, it gives you, a lot of tools to work from. Um, You learn about not only how to code a lot of algorithms, but in Kirill's uh, intuition tutorials, he talks a lot about um, good use cases for the algorithm. He gives an overview of how the algorithm works and what it's doing under the hood. And in my case, um, being able to identify the a priori algorithm as the best tool to solve the problem that I was working on was directly connected to Kirill's explanation on what that algorithm is used for. And so I think even if you um, like are just starting out, uh, what this gives you is it gives you a roadmap of different tools that you can use, different algorithms that you can work with and the use cases that they apply to. So it empowers you to be able to at least look at a problem and think, oh, like I can think of some algorithms that would fit this, like even if it's as simple as, oh, this is a regression problem versus a classification problem. It's like, okay, well, now I've narrowed down the list of things I need to look into that could be a potential solution. Um, and I was very pleased just with how quickly I was able to do that after taking that course. And so, especially if you're just starting out in the field, I would highly recommend it.
0: Man, thank you so much. That's uh, such a, uh, so, so nice to hear. And you actually gave me a, an idea because... Um, you know, like usually, like uh, for this question, uh, I uh, expect a book, and you recommended a course, and I actually thought of we should release this course as a book. Like it should be a book, machine learning A to Z. I think that would be pretty cool for people to get their hands on as well, like a supplement thing. Thanks, thanks for the idea. Anyway, I'll I'll talk to Adlan about it. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a huge pleasure and I'm sure a lot of listeners got so much value out of it. Um, Once again, thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Quite a lot of different topics that we discussed and a very inspiring career path. I'm sure you'll agree that Brian is creating for himself, uh, how he's leveraging the skills he has to be better at data science, how he's leveraging data science to uh, help with the work that he's doing, how he's bringing data science and machine learning into the company where he's working and helping them create better products and services or service their customer base even better and derive value out of their data even more efficiently. Uh, My personal favorite part of this podcast was the discussion we had about modeling, the development, deployment, and maintenance parts or stages of any model's life cycle. And uh, personally, I really enjoyed that whole brainstorming part we had about maintenance and how you need to think about maintenance and how you can actually go about maintaining a model. I think we came up with some uh, interesting ideas. Uh, and just in general, the whole process, you can, as you can see, the whole process of, like, discussing things with your colleagues and peers can be very helpful in terms of uh, sharing ideas with others, but also coming up with ideas in the process. And I think that's what we saw in this podcast. Um, on that note, you can find all of the links uh, to this podcast at www.superdayscience.com/. Uh, 215 and that's where you can also find uh, the url for brian's linkedin and connect with him there make sure to follow his career and see what what he gets up to and maybe uh, share him a message if you have any questions about modeling if you have any questions about uh, integrating data science and machine learning into your careers in a similar way that he did and uh, there we go hope uh, you enjoyed this podcast if you did make sure to leave us a review on uh, iTunes. That would be very helpful for us to spread the word and get more people involved so that they know that uh, there is valuable, there are valuable insights that they can pick up from this podcast and from our guests. Um, apart from that, thank you so much from, for being here today and sharing this hour with us. I can't wait to see you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.